Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. President Theodore Roosevelt had many challenges during his career. Corruption in the New York police force, the creation of the Panama Canal, the Spanish-American War, protecting the Grand Canyon and other national monuments, and groundbreaking antitrust legislation. But the greatest challenge he faced was a volcano in a blue dress. His eldest daughter, flouter of convention, spicy of demeanor, and perhaps the world's first media superstar, who admirers across the world came to call America's Princess Alice. The End Let's talk about Alice Roosevelt Longworth. But first, let's place her into history. In 1901, Queen Victoria, after a glorious reign of 63 years, died and was succeeded by her son, Edward VII. An American businessman named William Harley drew up plans for his very first motorcycle, though he wouldn't add his three Davidson partners and incorporate their famous business, Harley-Davidson, for another two years. The six colonies of Australia joined into one federation and became the Commonwealth of Australia. This is the first year Nobel Prizes were awarded. When the Swedish inventor of dynamite died, the majority of Alfred Nobel's legacy was earmarked to award prizes for five areas of achievements during a year, namely peace, literature, physiology or medicine, chemistry, and physics. Born this year, Clark Gable, Grand Duchess Anastasia of Russia, Marlena Dietrich, Walt Disney, and Mickey Mouse's other dad, cartoonist Ub Iwerks. Died this year, painter Toulouse-Lautrec, author Johannes Spyri, who wrote Heidi, and Queen Victoria's oldest daughter, Victoria, German Empress and Queen of Prussia. And on September 14, 1901, Alice Lee Roosevelt, upon her father's inauguration as the nation's 26th president, became America's princess in the eyes of the country and the eyes of the world. Hello, and welcome to the show. Susan is very ill today and has no voice, and so we switched from our regular planned episode, and it is me, Becca Graham, with a substitution, a subject that I've been low-key obsessed with as a sideline for a couple of years. I already have a shelf full of books about her, and as a result of the shorter timeline and what I have already been working on, I'm going to have more of a rooster in here than we usually do. Alice's father, Theodore Roosevelt, or TR, as we're going to call him, plays a larger part in both this episode and our subject's life than we normally like to include, but hey-ho, he's a pretty larger-than-life character anyway. And so, with that caveat in place, on with the show. Alice Lee Roosevelt was born on February 12, 1884, on the third floor of her grandmother's mansion in New York City, the oldest of the six surviving children of Theodore Roosevelt Jr. and the only child of Alice Hathaway Lee Roosevelt. I'm so sorry to say that most of what we know of Alice's mama is superficial. She was sweet, she was pretty, tall, with long wavy blonde hair and blue-gray eyes that sparkled when she laughed, a quiet beacon in every room, to the point her family called her Sunshine as a family nickname. Her husband once wrote of her, quote, None ever knew her who did not love and revere her for her bright, sunny temper and her saintly unselfishness. She was the daughter of a prominent banking family in Boston. Her papa's ancestry was very, very OG. There is a famous saying about the Boston Brahmins, the Lowells speak only to Cabots, and the Cabots speak only to God. 
and her papa had Cabot as a middle name. As old money as you can get in the good old U.S. of A. Alice's papa, Theodore Roosevelt, and I always called him Teddy until my research unearthed that he hated that, so we are going to be calling him T.R., which he liked a lot. So T.R. was from one of the oldest families in New York, going back to one Schuyler family who took up residence in the 1650s. His family was deep into the intertwined family relationships of the original New York wealthy, the Knickerbockers, the old money who so virulently opposed our old friend Alva Vanderbilt and all of her new money friends that you will see in the Gilded Age and in our Gilded Age heiresses podcast and for the decades to come. In fact, Theodore would later rail against the high society types who were, quote, the men of wealth who sacrifice everything to just getting wealth and to purchase some scoundrel or other of high position for their daughter. Hmm. Who is he referring to? T.R.'s papa himself helped found the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Natural History. He was a man of good works and good times, said T.R., and T.R. regarded his father as the ideal man, the man to emulate, the model for all to follow. T.R.'s mother, Martha, who everyone called Mitty, came from a wealthy family in the South. Notably, she had grown up with an enslaved handmaiden named Bess, who used to sleep at the foot of her bed. That's how Southern she was. The Civil War had, of course, snapped her way of life, and her Confederate brothers were either dead or exiled to Britain. She emerged from the war years with a sort of trauma response, which manifested in hypochondria and mysophobia. Not a fear of mice, but a fear of dirt. Her oldest daughter, Bammy, short for Bambina, who was four years older than T.R., took up the responsibilities of running the household at a very early age. Oldest daughters, they run the world. Mitty was considered one of the two most beautiful women in New York. Who's the other one? I'm guessing Eleanor Roosevelt's mother. That's just me. But she was charming. She was vivacious in her youth and likely a model for Margaret Mitchell's character of Scarlett O'Hara. Perhaps Scarlett O'Hara without the grit, but it was her oldest daughter, Bammy, who was everyone's rock. So here's Papa, hale and hearty, rich and full of bonhomie, so charming, so debonair. And here's his eldest son, sickly, with asthma. Papa once bluntly told him if he didn't take himself in hand, he was looking at a career of being an invalid. So in his teens, tiny Theodore boxed, rode horses. He was an outdoorsman. He purposely faced everything that made him feel afraid. That was his philosophy of life. He grew up with the children of other Knickerbocker families, in particular, one Edith Caro, a serious, studious, intelligent girl who he actually was officially walking out with, a girlfriend, we'd call her, by the standards of his day. T.R. was sent to Harvard, where he was a dandified young gentleman, intense and bookish and prone to put people off. <laughs> Not his actual family, who loved him with extreme intensity, but everyone else is like, slow your roll a bit, Chachi. Give me a minute. I mean, it's hard to live up to a paragon like Papa. I always wonder about the children of the really famous. There's a lot of pressure, I think. More on that later, by the way. T.R. wanted to be a naturalist, a scientist, an author, and his papa deemed that a respectable course of action, warned that it wouldn't come with a whole lot of money, but it was a respectable pursuit for a man of his social class. T.R., incidentally, would go on to write 39 books, among all of his other accomplishments. 
three things happened in quick succession during TR's sophomore year at Harvard. He and Edith had a mysterious but complete breakup. And then out of nowhere, his father died abruptly at the young age of 46 of cancer, leaving his teenage son to be the man of the family. And lastly, while on a visit to a well-heeled classmate's country house, he got the thunderbolt when he met Alice Hathaway Lee from a prominent Boston family. Of course, who else do we associate with? Uh, enchanting. Everyone loved her, but not as much as T.R. loved her. From the day they met, he was smitten. By Thanksgiving, he vowed to himself that he would win her. He hurried to give her a premature proposal. He wanted to catch her before her debut, before he would have all the extreme competition that he feared would descend upon her. But she said no. There was a year of exhausting wooing. Honestly, reading it, it seems stalkery. And I would have blocked him on social media. But Alice had no such luxury as their social circles were pretty much, if it was a Venn diagram, it would be a circle. There was another year of more auspicious and mutual relationship growth in which TR was so nervous that someone would reach in and scoop her away even at this last minute that he rode away for a set of dueling pistols, just in case. I told you he was intense. But eventually, Alice agreed to marry him. And he said, if loving her with my whole heart and soul can make her happy, she shall be happy for her whole life. The aim of my life shall be to shield her and guard her from every trial. Who could ask for anything more? On Valentine's Day, 1880, their engagement was announced and they were married in October on the groom's 22nd birthday, although they didn't go on their honeymoon immediately because he was still in law school and had to wait for term to end. They joined the social world of what we would later call the 400. Literally, all of their invitations are from people that Mrs. Astor would later cement in her fairly famous list of who's who. He began construction on a 22-room house that he planned to call Lee Holm after his wife. When they got back, T.R. decided to buckle down. He had been nominated as the assemblyman for the 21st District of New York and sort of got shocked by the low behavior of the rest of the assemblymen that he worked with in Albany at the Capitol. Aye, aye, aye. Genteel summers in borrowed yachts and the hallowed halls of Harvard do not prepare you for the dirty dealing and ruthlessness of politics, especially not New York politics of the time. But T.R. had finally found his place. He was soon the leader of the minority party and on key committees and making a name for himself with anti-corruption legislation and his willingness to fight. Alice didn't stay with him in Albany during legislative sessions because other wives were sort of N-O-K-D. Do you know what that means? Not our kind, dear. Roosevelt's did have a wide vein of snobbery, but she stayed home instead. T.R. as some self-care went out west to hunt buffalo and then... He went and bought shares and a ranch, too. This really appealed to his masculine nature, his masculine ideal to be a cowboy with like dirty socks and a tanned face and what glorious machismo this was. I mean, I'm for it. Everyone should have their own thing. My own slice of machismo in the house chooses to ride motorcycles in the Dominican Republic or sailboats to Cuba. So I got one in the house. In 1883, Alice was pregnant at last. T.R.'s schedule being what it was, Alice moved in to her mother-in-law Mitty's house with T.R.'s other sister Corinne and her new baby and Bammy to take care of them all. So cozy, but probably not for Bammy. 
Alice's baby was due in February. And TR was just convinced, because of course, that the baby would be born on Valentine's Day because that would be appropriate. It was a significant day in his life. Correct. Timing. So on the 12th, two days before that, he just thought he'd run up to Albany to go to work and get some stuff done RQ. That very night, after one day of labor, Alice gave birth to a healthy baby girl. Her mother-in-law, Mitty, had gone to bed with a serious cold, so it was Mitty's sister, Anna, and Alice's own mother who were with her at the birth, along with the doctor. You ought to have been a boy, said Grand Aunt Anna to the baby as she was wrapping her up, and the poor mama said, I love a little girl. No one noticed the grave face of the doctor. At work, T.R. received a note from his sister telling him that he was the proud papa of a baby girl. You have a daughter. Your wife, Alice, is fairly well, only to be followed hours later by a telegram to come home immediately. It took him hours to get home, and the house was in turmoil. Bammy had arranged for both babies, the brand new one and Sister Corinne's baby, who everyone had been watching while her parents took a weekend trip to go to another house. She found them a wet nurse. She found them a nanny to meet them at Grand Aunt Anna's house and something much worse. When T.R. arrived, it was to find his dear mother, Mitty, dying from typhoid, as it turned out to be in her own room, and his beloved wife, Alice, dying upstairs, a result of undiagnosed kidney disease that had been hidden and perhaps exacerbated by her pregnancy. T.R. stood vigil at his wife's bedside, but she'd never regained consciousness. He had to take a break at about three in the morning and go downstairs and witness his mother pass away and then come upstairs to hold his wife's hand as she too left this earth. In one day, his whole world had changed. Bammy cut a lock of Alice's hair and put it into a locket for the new baby. She arranged the new baby's baptism the next day and the new baby Alice Lee Roosevelt wore that locket at her baptism, along with the christening gown her mother had so carefully chosen for this very occasion and laid out. Bammy shepherded the shocked T.R. through this ceremony and then through the double funeral for his wife and for his mother, putting her own shock and grief on the back burner as much had to be done. Also left to her was the selling of the family home, all of the paperwork of death. The traditional man of the house was too mired in grief for his wife to take up any duties at all, but Bammy had everyone's full trust. In his diary, for February 14th, T.R. wrote just an X and the words, The light has gone out of my life. He decided to sort of whitewash his beloved wife out of existence. He did not speak her name again or even refer to her. She doesn't appear in his autobiography even. He left his baby, who he couldn't even bear to call by her name, with his sister, Bammy. For her whole early childhood, if he had to refer to our Alice at all, he called her Baby Lee, not even Baby Roosevelt. They actually all called her Bai's Baby Lee, Bai or Auntie Bai being another name that Bammy was called in the family. It was like a full transfer of ownership, psychologically. Auntie Bai stepped in, as she did in other spheres, including overseeing the construction of TR's 22-room house, and made Baby Lee feel loved and wanted. She was a mama to her, and a papa too, frankly, because TR stayed away as much as humanly possible, both with his political work and then out west on his ranch. He also, like Marianne Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility, had a genuine horror of second marriages— 
Alice Lee the Elder had been his one true love, the end, till both their deaths, soulmates, a la Queen Victoria and Albert, who was so famously mourned for 40 years. So, when, after almost two years, he re-encountered his childhood-slash-high school girlfriend, Edith Caro, again, he was ashamed and conflicted by the fact that he was falling in love, ashamed even when he, quote, confessed his engagement to his sister. Of course, he said, when Edith and I marry, you may keep baby Lee. I will pay her expenses. I mean, dude, wash the whole previous marriage out of your hair, why don't you? Not good. Well, T.R. and Edith married when baby Lee was three and a half years old and then went on a months-long honeymoon. And then, at Edith's insistence and T.R.'s great surprise, Edith said that she wanted baby Lee to come live in their house. She saw baby Lee as her duty, as her husband's child. One of our Alice's first memories was of Bammy dressing her in her best little dress and sending her downstairs with a bouquet of pink flowers to give to a strange woman that she was now to call mother. It broke my heart to give her up, wrote Aunt Bammy, but give her up she did. And off Baby Lee went to a strange house, the giant house her father had intended to call Lee home, but now was to be called Sagamore Hill, to a strange life where she was definitely sidelined. Her stepmother was pregnant and, unbeknownst to the child, had already had one miscarriage and was understandably concerned about this baby. T.R. was, of course, frightened. He was very, very stressed out. I will say they gave it a go. There was a period of reading to Baby Lee, of rambles through the woods, of trying to be a family. From here, it maybe unfairly looks like an alien checking out a book called What Does One Do With a New Four-Year-Old Child? But in fairness, this was new to everybody. Honestly, everyone was just doing the best they could. And Victorian parents were not supposed to be this hands-on anyway. They probably did better than 75% of parents out there at the time in this social class, actually. I'm going to give them props for that. Baby Theodore Jr. was born only months after Baby Lee joined the family. Edith descended into a bout of severe postpartum depression and had forbidden Bammy the house completely. There was a bit of competition for TR's mm, regard and value. So Alice had no one to help her understand what was going on. She sure loved her baby brother, though. Ted, the family called him. And the family began to call her sister instead of Baby Lee. So still, her actual name was a non-entity. In fact, she did have a few pictures of the woman she was named for, her real mother, but didn't fully understand who she even was. She was a pretty lady that her Irish nurse told her to put into her prayers, and that's pretty much all she knew. This woman got taken away. And so little sister would be sitting by Ted's crib overnight, and when asked what she was doing there, she said she didn't want Ted to be taken away. So already she's got a little bit of a confusing trauma about where her mother is and who she is and who Ted is and what am I doing here? Edith and T.R. would go on to have four more living children and Edith would have three additional miscarriages and each time the family dynamic had to go through the painful change and growth and Alice never fully understood why she was different than her siblings. Her father never talked about the fact that she had a different mother, but every summer she was sent away to her maternal grandparents' house where she seemed to have relatives that her brothers and sister didn't have. Families of cousins, beautiful aunts, a whole house to roam and no one to tell her no. 
every summer. She was spoiled rotten and was the focus of all her Lee relatives like an uber-only child. She could be as mischievous as she wanted and it would bring only a smile and a shake of the head. She had a baby gang of well-heeled pirates that roamed the neighborhood and (laughs) caused distress. This is where I belonged, Alice would later write, but she only belonged for a month. Her wealthy Lee grandparents gave sister an allowance that T.R. and Edith used to joke about in front of her. We better be nice to sister because her money keeps this family afloat. So weird. I have a New Year's resolution for you that's actually easy to keep. This is the year to finally stop wearing uncomfortable bras. Why do we keep doing that to ourselves? Support for today's episode comes from Honey Love. Honey Love has revolutionized the bra game, so you no longer have to deal with uncomfortable underwire without sacrificing support. You'll immediately feel and see the difference. Their bras are so comfortable, you won't want to take it off. For a limited time only, you can get Honey Love on sale. Get 20% off your entire order with our exclusive link, honeylove.com slash historychicks. Support our show and check them out at honeylove.com forward slash history chicks. We all have a go-to bra that we always pick over everything else in our collection. Honey Love's crossover bra is so comfortable that it's my own new go-to. For years, I thought underwires were the only way to go, but aha, not so. This bra is comfortable enough that I often sleep in it. Can you say that about your daily torture device? This bra gives all the support of traditional bras without using any underwires. Plus, mesh detailing adds a touch of spiciness, which is certainly not what I had expected in such a comfy undergarment. Hooray! Treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash historychicks. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off honeylove.com slash historychicks. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Start the new year with confidence, thanks to Honey Love. T.R. still saw himself as an author and a historian, even though his political party still wanted him to participate in the campaign trail for their candidate for president. He, by virtue of that work, landed a civil service commissioner job in Washington, D.C. It was more money and the family moved cities. Back to our friend, young Alice, T.R., and Edith, between them, taught sister to read at an early age, and around the age of five, her Irish nurse was supplemented with a governess named Mademoiselle Drouet. Soon, the little child became bilingual, trilingual, actually, if you count Latin, which she learned a little later. Alice had free reign of the Sagamore Hill Library when the family was there and became a serious autodidact. Yes, she immersed herself in fiction, of course, even though her dad thought Mark Twain was like, too low class for her. So, of course, she read that under the covers. But Alice also had, like her father, a love of science, of geography, and history. Her parents recognized her brilliant mind early, but it was combined with this wildness and this otherness that they pretended not to understand. And here's why I say it that way. Alice was often low-key boiling with rage, even as a small child. And these are some things that people were willing to write down. Edith would say things like, your father and I were in love as children long before he met your mother. So I'm really his first wife. Or Edith once told Ted Jr. that if sister's mother had lived, Papa would have long since died of boredom. 
which of course baby Ted repeated to his sister. And then Edith would write to her friend, I do feel quite as sorry for the poor child as for myself and the other inhabitants of the nursery. She realizes that something's wrong with her and goes through a real mental conflict to get it straightened out. Alice was a nine-year-old child. And you're saying that the nine-year-old child knows there's something wrong with her and is trying to figure herself out? I don't know. I'm trying to make Alice more of a companion, said Edith to her husband. I'm afraid I do not do rightly in adapting myself to her. I wish I were happier for the children's sake. I don't know. That last thing seems well-intentioned. But anytime they had an argument, Edith would say, you shouldn't have married me. And and I'm just like, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Just so no, that's not a very healthy way to argue. Not much later, Alice would write in her diary, and I quote, Father doesn't care for me an eighth as much as he does the other children. We are not in the least congenial. Why should he pay attention to me or things I live for except to look on them with disapproval? Perception or reality? We were not there. TR and his oldest daughter were a lot alike. I will tell you they remind me of those magnets that push each other around and occasionally slam together. You know the ones I mean, like the ones you got at the toy store? The thing is, TR was gone a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think it really frustrated his wife that he left her with the reins for everything. Managed the property, managed the children, managed the finances, and just left for his buffalo hunt. And there's a lot of talk now about, you know, the mental load and the default parent. And I think Edith was experiencing that like way ahead of her time. Now, this part isn't necessarily awesome for Alice either, herself, but I just want to add in a quick note here about Aunt Bammy. She went to England to help a widowed friend, the assistant secretary to the American ambassador, whose wife, by the way, was one of the daughters of the Mrs. Astor. We're we're so connected in this family. This friend that she went to help is actually featured in the episode of The Gilded Age called Never the New. His name is officially James Roosevelt Roosevelt, a name so nice. He wore it twice, but everyone called him Rosie. So he um, he is introduced as James and as Rosie on the Gilded Age. Anyway, Bammy deployed her charm and organizational skill to the point where she was asked by the ambassador's wife to plan all social functions at the American embassy in London. Yes, she became so well-known and beloved there that she was presented to Queen Victoria. And she also married a very attractive, mustachioed American admiral for love. Hooray for Bammy! She still, upon her return, found time to reach out and turn some knobs of influence back in her brother's life. She found out a little too late that influential friends had asked TR again to run for the mayor of New York City. We the party have a chance this time. Won't you come along? And TR wrote, back a despairing letter to his friend after he turned it down like, this is the most pivotal decision of my life. I must give up all thought of the work that I truly love. He didn't feel like he could drop the sure thing of his civil service job to speculate on running for office. Something that we haven't mentioned is his ranch lost a lot of money, like in the millions of dollars money. Um, He could keep going, but he had a devastating financial blow. And I can only imagine his wife was not very cheerful about that. So money and his salary meant a lot. And so it was a big deal that he couldn't give it up. In fact, the guy that ultimately won, who ran for the party and won after TR turned it down, offered TR the job of street cleaning commissioner, which was clearly and understood to be a slap in his face. 
This was also the year, poor TR and poor Roosevelt's, that their brother Elliot, the youngest brother in the family, died in grim and scandalous circumstances, which I'm going to save for when we cover Eleanor Roosevelt, because this alcoholic man had been her father. Alice had played with Eleanor as a child, but hadn't been allowed to visit her for some time because of the erratic behavior of her uncle Elliot, you know, Eleanor's father. Alice wrote of her father, T.R., the man who, in her view, hardly ever noticed her anymore, and I quote, He greeted Eleanor with a hug so enthusiastic that he tore all the gathers out of Eleanor's frock and both buttonholes out of her petticoat. I mean to tell you, you are not going to believe the childhood of Eleanor Roosevelt, by the way. Alice was likely too young to be told about all the chaos, actually, and Eleanor was always held up to her as a model of good young lady behavior. Blurg, said Alice. Alice loved poking at her, I'm sorry to say. Also, that this relationship was pretty well solidified in that format for life. Notably, as an exception, once at a dance, Alice was dancing with their distant cousin, FDR, and whispered in his ear at the end of the polka, you should go speak to Eleanor. He went right over, asked her for the next dance, and Eleanor joyfully accepted. So, hooray for Alice putting the pieces on the chessboard in that way, but otherwise she was not very nice to Eleanor. Well, Papa T.R. did get a respectable job as a police commissioner for New York City. It's lovely to have houses of friends and family available wherever you need to go, and they stayed in Bammy's house, where T.R. was famous for his nighttime sting operations personally directed to try to catch dishonest or corrupt policemen. It's pretty brave action. Like I said before, he liked to face things that scared him and take them to their unnatural end. Alice had a very emo fascination with the death and destruction stories and that true crime nature of her father's work. He eventually had shaken up everyone he could shake and unmasked everyone he could unmask and went on the campaign trail for President McKinley. He was a very popular speaker. And backers of President McKinley and friends, including Aunt Bammy, who I would say is very influential, lobbied McKinley to give TR a responsible job. And McKinley was very nervous about it. He said, I like him, but TR's always in such a state of mind. Who does that sound like? Wherever did Alice get it? He said, TR's unpredictable and he's always arguing with people. True, but he would be really useful in the current climate. And ultimately, and against his better judgment, but to pacify his friends and supporters, McKinley appointed TR as the assistant secretary of the Navy. Finally, a job worthy of his talents and worthy of his social status. Off the family went again to Washington, D.C., and the wheels came off the cart with regard to 13-year-old Alice's behavior. She coasted on her bicycle with her feet up on the handlebars. Listeners of our Annie Londonderry episode will remember with what shock and trepidation society reacted to women suddenly getting this much autonomy in travel and riding their bicycles in the normal way, trouble with a capital T, which rhymes with B, which stands for bicycle. Sorry to the music man for that little bit of dogma. She gathered a baby gang of boys to hang out with, ran around town with them, had a secret club in a hayloft with them. She constantly was late in from curfew. Where is Alice? Alice has missed dinner. The final straw was one of the gang, a boy, showed up in a dress 
at the front door to see if Alice could come out and play. (laughs) I guess he thought that the dress would give him legitimacy, like if a boy came to the front door, they wouldn't let her come out. Well, anyway, there was a giant brouhaha, and her parents really had no energy for this. TR was included in an imminent American foray into what would later become the Spanish-American War. There had been tales of concentration camps in Cuba. McKinley was in the process of trying to negotiate with Spain for Cuban independence. TR was responsible for reshuffling of naval assets in case war broke out. And Edith had just had her last child, Quentin, her fifth surviving child, as it turns out. So he had a perfect name. And also, Ted Jr. was very, very ill. Alice was sent to stay in New York with Auntie Bammy right after she turned 14. Please, oh, please do something with her. We can't keep her around this house. And Alice was not an instant angel, of course. She and her friend slash cousin Helen Roosevelt, Rosie's daughter, sat on Aunt Bye's stoop and catcalled passersby, and they rode around in a cab with no chaperone and winked at strange men. <laughs> I love it. I mean, there was no internet. They had to do some stuff. Well, two days after she arrived at Aunt Bammy's, the USS Maine exploded and sank in Havana Harbor. Hundreds of American soldiers were killed. Public opinion pivoted immediately to Spain having committed this act, and rattlings began that America should get involved in war. And Aunt Bammy's husband was sent to assist with the month-long investigation of the sinking of the Maine. And so it's Monday now to tell you about how life at Aunt Bammy's changed Alice's demeanor for the better, which, of course, TR was so gratified to hear about. Here's what happened. Bammy kept her young relatives busy with lectures, with concerts, with required lessons, with interesting company in the house, with expectations of minding herself. Bammy was interesting company herself. Her words have been described as spicy, as perhaps acid, but Alice saw how people took to Bammy. It was a good example, I think, of using your intelligence and gathering people to you and enlivening a room. And Alice really admired that and really tried to imitate that. She'd always been a good imitator of accents, of her Irish nanny, of her French governess, later of Eleanor Roosevelt, which was not as um, noble. Anyway, so she was a good mimic and tried to model herself a little bit on Aunt Bammy. But the most important thing that Aunt Bammy provided, in fact, was attention. An adult who listened to her, who really listened, and also unconditional love that she had had for Alice since she was born. Now, as to war, I'm going to have to direct you, if you want more about TR's next chapter, to a specific link about his regiment, the Rough Riders. It was made up of Native Americans, of retired police officers, gold prospectors, cowboys, hunters, college men from the East Coast, millionaires, and military veterans, which he and his friend recruited, armed, and trained his friend, Colonel Wood, and T.R. as his lieutenant colonel, and then very, very much against the wishes of his wife, in May of 1898, T.R. abruptly left Washington and went to war in Cuba. And according to my family history, some sort of great uncle Wright who participated as well. I haven't really had time to go down that particular rabbit hole, So we shall see if I can find any evidence. But family lore says that we had a young male relative that rode, or in some cases, walked with the Rough Riders and Teddy Roosevelt. So 
more on that if I find any more. Everyone who knew for sure is no longer with us, so that's a bummer. So TR, very much against the wishes of his wife, in May of 1898, TR abruptly left Washington and went to war in Cuba. There was another war much closer to home. There was such tension in the Roosevelt house that Edith enrolled Alice at Miss Spence's boarding school. This is for Susan. Go Sabres. It's a very famous boarding school, still in existence, with such illustrious alumni as Marjorie Merriweather Post, Edie Beale, and Gwyneth Paltrow, if you want a more recent graduate. The servants were sewing the name tapes in all the clothes. The trunks were being packed. The sheets had been bought. The towels had been bought. As far as Edith was concerned, Alice was on her way to boarding school. And Alice said, I promise you that I will do something to humiliate you. I have it in my power to make it very embarrassing for you. Woo. Oh my gosh, I'd rather go back to the other war. Well, the short version is, for right or wrong, war being what it is, and TR's part in it being key or not, depending on your perspective, TR came back a war hero. His exploits were famous. You've likely even seen the souvenir portrait of TR in his sort of slouchy cowboy casual war outfit. Cuba had made him a star. He was also a star in Alice's eyes. His daughter Alice went to the reviewing of his troops as the victorious men were mustered out and felt a genuine spark of something. She bemoaned her short skirts and her braided hair, which of course in that time indicated extreme youth and not being out. If only I were older, she said. This reminds me so much of the two youngest Bennett sisters. Soldiers, ooh. Anyway, oh, TR, if you thought middle school was hard, you buckle up, buttercup. Mm-mm-mm. TR considered the Spence's plan, and instead, he hired a live-in governess for his oldest daughter as a compromise, because he also knew, like you and I do, that Alice was good for her threat. And he had been asked to perform on a bigger stage. His Cuban experience propelled TR to the governorship of New York State. And the years he was governor coincided with that period in Alice's growing up where you you figure out who you are. This is only my view, but it seems like Alice had to sort of bring herself up. You know, indulgence on one side and inattention on the other. She borrowed from Bammy and invented the rest from literary heroes of hers and just nothing, you know, her friends. She began growing into a young lady, paying calls, playing tennis, going horseback riding, lunching, shopping. She played basketball. Amazingly, that seemed out of context. She was actually the captain of her team. She kept up a vast correspondence. She was so good at assisting Edith at public events when the governor's wife was required at a ceremony or a charity event. She was very good at helping with the children. This honestly was the most harmonious the family had ever been, and Edith wished it would never end. But special interests in the state of New York were finding TR's attention to detail problematic. In particular, this statement, corporations must be made to pay their share of public burdens. rot The powers that be looked around for a place to put him. The public loved him and his pizzazz and his personality. We can't just let him loose someplace. He better be the guy we still have hold of, kind of. 
I know, let's put him on the presidential ticket as McKinley's vice president. And this is where you would cut and paste like evil laugh, blow up cigar smoke. The VP job was seen by most as putting him on a shelf, out of harm's way, still public, but neutralized. Beckett and I are delighted to welcome Lumi Deodorant as a sponsor of the History Chicks. What's Lumi? Lumi is whole body deodorant that was designed by an OB. You can use it from the top of your pits to the bottom of your toes and your entire body in between. Lumi is clinically proven to block odor all day long, which is what you want in deodorant, of course. And it has a one of a kind pH optimized formula so you can use it everywhere. I have been using Lumi deodorant for years. I saw a very clever ad that they had on social media a few years ago, and I sent off for it and loved it. I use their stick deodorant. Mostly, I use their body wash. It's amazing. And I also use their deodorant wipes. These deodorant wipes are fantastic. They're great for when you travel. I put some in my carry-on bag, and I freshen up whenever we get someplace because I don't have time to take another shower, but I want to smell like I took a shower and just feel fresh. I put them in my bag that I used to take when I would go to watch my son's sporting events. Heck, I've even put these packs into the stockings of my family. That's how much I love them. Lumi deodorant is baking soda-free paraben-free, it's pH-balanced for safe use everywhere, and it's clinically proven to control odor better than a shower with soap alone. If you've never given Lumi a try, now is a great time. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream deodorant tube, and two free products of your choice, and there is free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code CHICKS at Lumi Deodorant. That's L-U-M-E, Lumi, LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code CHICKS. So, old TR is wise to the political machinations, but what could he even do exactly? President McKinley's own OG, vice president, had died. McKinley's advisor's hair stood on end. That cowboy, everyone is crazy. You'd better stay alive, sir, he said to McKinley. He felt like he was taking crazy pills, like everyone was so excited about this. And he's like, this is not a good idea. TR was swept up in a tidal wave of enthusiasm and support from the public on the front side and strong hands pushing him from the back. His own friends reassured him and advised him, you're a young man and this position is a great opportunity for the big job later. Wink, wink. Well, it was as inevitable as Niagara Falls. Teddy Roosevelt was nominated as McKinley's running mate with 16,000 people in a room shouting, we want Teddy. We want Teddy. Well, they got him. They sure got him. TR gave 700 speeches on behalf of McKinley. That's the best running mate ever, popularity-wise. The weekend before Election Day, TR paid his daughter Alice a great compliment, that of standing on the reviewing stand during a military parade. It was November. There was freezing rain. But for seven hours, she stood proudly beside him while tens of thousands of men marched by chanting his name, Teddy, Teddy. Both TR and Alice were exhilarated at the experience. 
Aren't you worried that you'll get a cold, that your daughter will get a cold? Ah, the weather's not going to give you a cold. You're warm when you get a welcome like that. Alice, too, also warm inside from having been included at such a public event. McKinley and Roosevelt won their election handily, especially if you use the yardstick of the Electoral College. Republicans, of which TR was one, held the North, the Midwest, and the entire West Coast, and Democrats, as was traditional at the time, won all over the South. Sort of the opposite of what might happen today. Edith was nervous. Edith was super nervous about all the entertaining they'd be expected to do on their reduced budget, especially the big one pending in the not too distant future. Alice was 16 and soon she would have to make her debut into society. Edith, TR and Alice, too. They included her looked for a house that had to do a lot of different things, be impressive enough for official functions, big enough for family life and located in a convenient area and cheap enough for their budget. That's the big one. The VP position didn't come with a house. It actually didn't come with a house until 1974, when the house at number one observatory circle at the Naval Observatory began to be provided to them. Some friends stepped in with an offer of a house. Hooray! It's good to have friends in all the places. They couldn't take it up until winter when the original family left, but it's yours for the duration if you want it. So if anybody out there has a house in an awesome place they want to lend me for four years, that's amazing. That's a good friend. The whole extended clan came up for the inauguration. There was exultation in the land. And then the family went back home, awaiting their winter establishment. TR mentally prepared himself for four years of boredom, I guess, ineffectuality at best. But only six months later, the rest of the family was summering, as usual for them, in the country at a cabin in the Adirondack Mountains. But Alice was with her cousin slash friend Helen at a family camp elsewhere. Camp being what wilderness wealthy called their giant establishments. Have you seen the house in that new series, Yellowstone? Like, that's the level of camp we're dealing with. Lots of taxidermy and and diamonds. Yes. Not a camp any more than Newport is a cottage. That's what I'm saying. So everybody is summering in opulent luxury when TR received a grim telegram. President McKinley had been shot while he was in a receiving line at the Buffalo World's Fair. A young anarchist named Leon Chuggles, who had been radicalized after the Panic of 1893, like the 19th century's answer to the Great Depression, in his mind, somehow neutralizing the president would make things better for the common man. His frustrations had boiled over. He shook President McKinley's hand and with the other shot him twice at point blank range. The next man in line disarmed the assassin and the president was taken for emergency surgery. As the days went on, the president went more and more downhill. Eight days afterward, TR got a series of three telegrams that changed his life forever. Number one, the president is ill. There is absolutely no hope. The next one, the president is dying. Lose no time in coming. And TR rushed through a dark and stormy, dangerous descent from the mountains in the night and was handed the last one at the train station. The president died at 2.15 this morning. TR sent a telegram to his wife and got on the train as the new president of the United States. Edith pulled together morning clothes for herself and 13-year-old young Ted 
and headed to Washington. And she was absolutely swarmed by the public anytime it stopped wanting to see the new president's wife. She was very unnerved by the attention and, of course, worried for her husband, who, at 42, still has the record for the youngest president America ever had. Now, yes, Kennedy was the youngest president ever elected at 43, but Teddy Roosevelt was only 42 when McKinley was shot. And it must be said, the crowds around her, around her husband, around her son, made her extremely anxious because what had just happened to the last person who had this job and TR was already, I mean, this is, you know, day three, he was already evading his Secret Service protection, which you're really not supposed to do. After McKinley's funeral, the family moved into the White House sort of higgledy-piggledy. First, Ethel and Kermit, the middle kids. Ted Jr. had gone back to his boarding school, so he didn't come right away. And then the little kids with their nannies and their nurses. Notably, Edith sent a telegram to Alice to, quote, stay away until we are settled. And I think there was a little bit of turmoil. Alice had gone radio silent after McKinley's assassination. This family reminds me of Three's Company. They, they just, everybody misinterprets each other's motivations or conversations. And Edith was hurt that Alice didn't congratulate her father or even contact anyone. Alice was hurt not to be taken to the funeral. Edith had threatened to put Alice into a school in Washington, D.C. So Alice wanted to avoid Washington completely and just stayed away lest she be thrown into her school just like in a sitcom, one two-minute conversation with everyone at the same table might have straightened everything out. But it went on for months. Anyway, Alice was trouble even from 300 miles away because almost the first thing TR did was send for Booker T. Washington to talk about the, quote, black vote. They had a mutual need. TR wanted this voting block to win his next election, his first, quote, real election. And of course, Booker T. Washington wanted, frankly, what all humans want, which was equality. But what they actually talked about that night was TR's power to appoint judges that could remove or reduce or mitigate the policies in the South that restricted the Black man's ability to exercise their right to vote. We have talked about this often, from the Ida Wells podcast up to the Fannie Lou Hamer podcast. Poll taxes, literacy requirements, off-site registration, overt intimidation. They had such a good talk, in fact, that TR invited Mr. Washington to dinner. No person of color had ever been invited to the White House for dinner, ever. But Booker T. Washington had literally just had tea with Queen Victoria, and he knew this was a big deal in America. The dinner went great. Everyone was fine. There were only four people at the table. But the press somehow got the idea in their heads that Alice, now age 17, and Booker T. Washington had been seated together at dinner. And the press in the South went crazy with anger in a way that we might not understand today. They called it a grievous blunder that is worse than a crime. And Alice became sort of a symbol of the flower of white womanhood thrown into danger. I mean, I cannot stress how upset people were about this. Never mind that Alice had not yet set foot into the White House at all. Death threats rained down on TR and on Booker T. Washington, and TR thought he better go get Alice and bring her back. He was getting an honorary degree at Yale. I'm going to pick you up on the way. And Alice literally didn't realize this was all brewing. He sort of convinced her by offering to host her debut in a few months and also canceling the plan for school. Hooray! 
Hilariously, at the actual event, she was seated next to Mark Twain, who, of course, in her father's eyes, that was a crime. The irony. It was a heady experience seeing people treating her father with such respect. And when they got on the train, there was this unimaginable luxury of a private train car. And when they landed in Washington, D.C. and stepped off the train, what to her wondering eyes should appear? The crowd was chanting her name. Flashbulbs were popping in her direction. Later articles described her dress, her beauty, the flowers she wore, her regal demeanor, her smile, her graciousness. My, my, what have we here? What we have is an inkling of what was to come. The public loved the thought of the Roosevelt family in the White House. Six children roaming around there, playing hide-and-seek in the hallowed halls, stealing trays out of the kitchen to sled down the stairways, walking on stilts all over the place, bringing with them a whole menagerie of pets, lizards, guinea pigs, a macaw named Eli Yale, a pig, a rabbit, an owl, a couple of chickens, a baby badger, a lady had given the president in Silver Springs, Kansas, Quentin's pony, Algonquin, who Alice and her other siblings once put into the freight elevator to take up to Quentin's bedside when he was sick. But Algonquin thought there was another horse in there with him because of all the mirrors, and it was very hard to get him back out of there. The family had a bear, an actual bear named Jonathan Edwards after a Puritan minister because he was, quote, gloomy and strong, just like their mother's ancestor. Some supporters in West Virginia had actually given that bear to Alice. Believe it or not, Jonathan Edwards was not the first bear at the White House. Thomas Jefferson had a pair of grizzlies that he kept outside, but this bear had the run of the house for a while, just running around with the family dogs. T.R. used to walk this bear on a leash and feed it honey and nuts. People were more scared of the badger, actually, who used to leap up and sort of ching people. (laughs) Or sometimes Quentin, especially, would nonchalantly bring a box into a meeting room and like, oops, the snakes got out. I mean, it was chaos in there. Eventually, T.R. had to get Jonathan Edwards out of the house. He got too big and kind of too crazy, and and he convinced the Bronx Zoo to take him. (laughs) I will put a picture of his note on the Pinterest board. The whole place was kind of a zoo, actually. Glorious chaos. And just after the new year, an event Alice had been looking forward to for years finally happened. It was time for her debut, held in the White House, which she had been downplaying to her friends like, oh, pshaw, it's just nothing. It's whatever. And she was actually kind of glad that she did because massive arguments between Alice and her stepmother about this event broke out all over the place. As you can only imagine, Edith insisted And this is probably the core of the problem between them. She insisted that T.R. by rights should be the one to pay for everything and not Alice's strangely superior income. Therefore, there was significant cost cutting that embarrassed Alice very much. And she said of herself, writing as a much older woman, I became a very disagreeable young person. Punch instead of the expected champagne. No favors for the high-ranking and rich guests. Chintzy floral arrangements. I mean, there were thousands of flowers in there. Whatever. As far as Alice was concerned, this event was going to be a letdown, like almost like a, a hoot and nanny or something. Instead of having a respectable dance floor, there was just fabric stretched over this ugly mustard-colored carpet left over from the Cleveland administration. At least someone went under that floor and structurally reinforced everything with big logs because floors had been known to collapse. I know in comparison to anything you and I might have, this 
I mean, it was more glamorous than 99.9999% of the entire world had access to even then. News of that party was exhilarating from the outside. There were 600 guests in the White House. Alice Roosevelt in white chiffon decorated with rosebuds with white gloves to her elbows. The lovely Alice, quote, was seven deep in men the whole time with everyone dancing until two in the morning. Artists' renderings of Alice from this event absolutely captured the public's imagination. There were no movie stars, of course, and all of that energy was laser-focused now on Alice Roosevelt. What she wore became instantly fashionable. You've heard of, perhaps, the Kate Middleton effect on sales today. I was thinking about, why do we still call her Kate Middleton? She's been married for, I don't know, 12 years now. But then I remember, oh, we still call Anne Boleyn, you know, Anne Boleyn. So (laughs) I guess it's just a thing. Anyway, Alice's favorite color was reputed to be a specific color of light gray blue, the color of her eyes. Alice herself called it postman uniform blue, but that didn't have a nice ring to it. And a craze for this color that was now called Alice Blue, it was the most fashionable color in the country. I thought Alice Blue referred to Alice in Wonderland, and I might have been exactly wrong, because although Alice, book Alice, had appeared before in, of course, black and white pen and ink drawings, once color came along, she had been featured in white and in yellow. But... The first major edition of Alice in Wonderland that came out after Alice Roosevelt's debut featured Alice, book Alice, in a blue gown. And that edition was very popular, so popular that most of the time, future illustrators kind of used it as canon. That is what she looked like. The book doesn't mention the color of her dress. Then that was cemented later in 1951 when, of course, Disney used a blue gown for Alice's costume. So it's not that much of a stretch to assume that the popularity of Alice Blue and the main character in the book being named Alice led to book Alice having a blue gown. So it was entirely backwards. Alice Roosevelt was in charge of Alice Blue. If you want to see for yourself what color Alice Blue is, it is Pantone P115-1C. Or if you're on a computer and want to see the hex code, it is F0F8FF. A song called Alice Where Art Thou that was popular pre-Civil War enjoyed a resurgence as people deployed it at every event in which she was present. Hundreds of requests poured in for her autograph. Even her little brother Quentin asked for, quote, a signature please, sister. She had become a phenomenon. I had a problem. Sometimes previous me was not very patient. And when you're craving a certain movie, you'll do anything to get it in front of your eyes, including signing up for that streaming service again. Sometimes I'd sign up for a free trial to get a hold of a discount or access to read something. And hey, presto, I had subscribed. And I'd go down my bank statements and just see that legitimate name of a business I really do use. No immediate red flag. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. So I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on. It was very eye-opening and I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. That's rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. Alice Roosevelt, international celebrity, increased the circulation of newspapers all over the world. The White House had to hire another secretary just to handle Alice's mail. Sometimes it was hard to tell what was true and what was false. Did Alice walk around wearing a green snake named Emily Spinach? Yes, she did. Did Alice smoke cigarettes on the White House roof? Why, yes, she did. In her defense, T.R. yelled at her not to smoke under his roof, but he never said anything about on the roof. He once tried to break her of smoking by handing her two cigars and demanding that she smoke them all the way down. If you're going to keep smoking, how about this? Why, thank you. Thank you very much. And she smoked them down to the nub with a big smile on her face. I should have put an end to your smoking long ago. Yes, darling father, you should have, but it's far, far too late now. Hilarious stories, everyone. But when the press told people she turned cartwheels in the upstairs hall, I would never. That was not very ladylike. And a scurrilous story emerged about Alice stripping to her underwear and dancing on a table. That one actually brought a lawsuit. I mean, there's exciting and there's reputation killing. TR and Edith had just a conflicted feeling about what seemed to be happening with the world and their daughter. And later in her autobiography, Alice wrote, and I quote, this whole attitude toward publicity was so ridiculous. I was brought up on the principle that nice people, nice women especially, didn't get their names in the papers except when they were born, when they married, or when they died. We were always being enjoined not to talk to reporters and to avoid photographers. But at the same time, there was all this interest in our every move. The family was always telling me, Beware of publicity. And then there's publicity hitting me in the face every day. And once stories got out, or once they were invented, I was accused of courting publicity. I once destroyed a savage letter on this subject from my father because I was so furious with him. There was he, one of the greatest experts in publicity there ever was, accusing me of trying to steal his limelight. Well, that was a battle that was going to be fought over and over and over through the course of the rest of their lives. But TR seemed to realize, though, that Alice knew where the real line was. I mean, if you just look back at the cartwheel story, she was horrified and wanted that squashed. So she knew where the line was between impropriety and impropriety. You know, there was one truth that was self-evident. Alice was good for the TR approval rating and she was deployed sometimes like a not-so-secret weapon. TR was once questioned how come he didn't seem to have more control over his oldest daughter, to which he famously replied, I can do one of two things. I can be president of the United States, or I can control Alice Roosevelt. I cannot possibly do both. I love it. 
Alice found a kindred spirit in another young woman who had been a feature of the gossip columns since her arrival in Washington. Countess Marguerite Cassini first came to the capital as the 16-year-old, quote, niece of the Russian ambassador. She was the hostess at all of the Russian embassy events. But the tittle-tattle never seemed to stop. Was she his niece? What if she was his, you know, lady friend or his natural daughter? Oh, no. Was she even a countess? Well, the truth was, she was the count's daughter. And her parents were married. Her mother, a famous singer in Russia, who was not really supposed to have married into the nobility, had been posing in Washington, D.C. as Marguerite's governess in the ambassador's household. Marguerite had been both legitimized as a member of the nobility and declared a countess in her own right by Tsar Nicholas II himself. So, huh, no higher authority back home, back at you, naysayers. These two ladies, Alice and Marguerite, were the bosses of the most powerful clique in Washington, D.C., for the under-25s. Alice famously drove Marguerite's red convertible around D.C. Like a bat out of you-know-where, and the police were not about to give her a ticket. What were they supposed to do? Turned out, there for a while, anyone driving any red car would get what amounted to a free pass in D.C. because the police would avoid you. That's some kind of power. Prince Heinrich of Prussia brought a diamond bracelet for Alice as a present from his brother Kaiser Wilhelm. My brother wishes for Miss Roosevelt to christen his new yacht, please. This was built by an American company, and Heinrich had been sent to America to pick it up, among other diplomatic duties. The French ambassador immediately protested. He's just trying to get America on Germany's side by having Miss Roosevelt at his event. Wow, what's that like? A whole country is losing its temper because of your influence on the American people. TR thought this was just fine. I think a little jealousy between countries might be good for a world power or two. And he gave his permission. Alice went immediately to practice smashing champagne bottles in Aunt Bammy's backyard. She didn't want to do a bad job. On the day, the New York Times reported, quote, Miss Roosevelt was the most self-possessed person on the stand. Gossip colonists, of course, made note of the number of times Prince Heinrich took her arm and described in detail everything she was wearing and all the expressions on her face. The christening of the meteor went off without a hitch. Alice herself sent a telegram to the Kaiser, no big, as if they were friends. I congratulate you, and I thank you for your courtesy to me, and I send my best wishes, Alice Lee Roosevelt. Kaiser Wilhelm was so charmed by her that he later rechristened a German admiralty yacht, the Alice Lee, in her honor and featured a portrait of her on the wall. The New York Times, for the very first time, dubbed Alice Roosevelt Princess Alice. Other favorable coverage in the newspaper, in Leslie's Weekly, Alice has all the honors and pleasures of royalty without being in the least hampered by its restrictions. Her worldwide popularity was never equaled by any other maiden. In the Ladies' Home Journal, she was praised as a typical American girl in the best sense of the word, modest, self-reliant, and democratic. Prince Heinrich himself did escort Alice to the opera that night, but alas for romance, he was already married. Sad trombone. Perhaps contact with other princes might be in order. 
Whitelaw Reed, the special U.S. envoy to Britain for the coronation of Edward VII, invited Alice to accompany him and his family, including his daughter Jean, to the event. Jean, who would, incidentally, later, in that second wave of Gilded Age heiresses, eventually become Lady Ward because she married the second son of an earl. Hooray! Well, at first, T.R. agreed to let Alice go. Amazing! That's the most exciting news she's ever heard. And then assorted things cropped up. For one, reality. The American ambassador, only an acting one at that, could not just invite people to a coronation willy-nilly. Sir, we cannot guarantee your daughter will be admitted to Westminster Abbey once we get there. That's a problem. We'll need to pull some favors. This is a congregation of royalty, actual royalty, all of the British nobility, representatives of countries all over the earth. And from home, there were worries about Alice's behavior. This is a solemn occasion, and she'll be there representing America. I mean, it's fun to call Alice a princess in the press, and we're all family over here on this side of the pond, but what are we doing Are we trading official favors to turn her into enough of a princess to get her in a door? Sir, we need to think about this. TR became concerned about all the hullabaloo, actually, and asked her not to go after all. There was definitely a bitter feeling about this. The protocol, the what-ifery, the caution, everything she hated was preventing her from going to the most important worldwide event, you know, bureaucracy was like to kill her with frustration. It sort of cemented her increasing distaste for what she called the meaningless niceties of government. It was a grievous disappointment. Now, reality is, I mean, TR knew that. He, he knew that. And, and he regretted having ever passed on the invitation, mostly because he had had to retract it. And so he devised a distraction. TR had a lot going on in Central America right now, and also in Cuba. And he was negotiating a lease with the Colombian government for a territory that they controlled called Panama. The French had abandoned a canal project there some decades ago at the very narrowest part of the land. And TR thought that a canal right there would be key, just key for America's development. And he knew he could make it happen. But he might have to pull out some nefarious techniques. I mean, this is a conversation for a whole other podcast, but let's just say TR's government was a key factor in the province of Panama declaring independence from Colombia, giving the United States the Panama Canal Zone, which was an economic engine. Theoretically, they gave it to us forever. But of course, you know, reality and fairness intervened. And from the 1970s on, Panama had increasing control until the Panama Canal reverted back to Panama in 1999, which I actually have a vague recollection of, I think. Well, anyway, I'll give you a link to all of that. Let's just say TR was busy. He had a lot going on, but there was a time-sensitive diplomatic situation in Cuba, and he needed two of him to be operating at the same time. Technically, Cuba was to become independent very soon, like in a month. On May 20th, 1902, Alice was to go to Cuba in April to be the goodwill proxy. It was a mission of great trust in her abilities and unspoken faith in her self-control where it mattered. Like he was testing her ability to recognize when you can kook around and when you cannot. And it was a month-long journey. She went, of course, with a chaperone. And at the other end, as her host, 
was TR's old Rough Rider colonel, one Leonard Wood, um, who had been and was the temporary and outgoing governor of Cuba. So she was in good hands. Do what you can. Cubans themselves had hated the necessity of U.S. troops on their land, but turned out in joyful force for Alice. And she, I mean, just like imagine this kind of montage of walkabout scenes, reminiscent, very reminiscent of Princess Diana. Charity receptions, visits to schools, talking to children, dances. She reviewed troops. She ate enormously spicy food, absolutely loved it, fanned herself to the joy of everyone that saw her, shopped for souvenirs, waved, smiled, behaved amid scores of people calling her name. Secretly, she was III about the muscular players in the high ally match she went to and was also very dangerously tempted to join the gambling, but she kept it all inside and she did a very good job. She did so well and her father was extremely proud of her. He was so proud of her and she had done such a great job that he sent her on a later diplomatic mission to Puerto Rico. And on that occasion, he wrote her a letter. Darling Alice, I had been very much pleased with all I'd heard of you and how you had acted in Puerto Rico. I'm very much pleased that you found the visit so interesting, and it was a good thing in more ways than one. You were of real service down there. You made those people feel you liked them and took an interest in them, and your presence was accepted as a great compliment. Goodbye, blessed girl, your loving father. Now that is progress, though it might be temporary. And that is where I'm going to leave you for episode one. We have been through some stuff, haven't we? And we've learned maybe a little more about TR than you would have expected to learn on this podcast. There's more to come in episode two, and I will try to get Susan back with me so that you have us both for the second part of her story. I hope the weather is nice where you are. I wish you all a happy new year, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, tell a few of your friends about an episode you think they'll love or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. There are still a few spots left for our Vienna and Salzburg trip in June, and by a few, I mean under five. You should Google how beautiful Hallstatt is. Just do it. We'll be there. And then go to likeminestravel.com to see the rest of the amazing itinerary. Stay tuned for part two of the Alice Roosevelt story, ideally including Miss Susan. The song in the middle is from our old friend James Harper, creating art as Harper Active. The song's called A Fork Where a Fork Don't Fit, and I, and I don't know why. And the song at the end is Forget the Princess by Collection Get. See you soon.